Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, the future is here. Loblaw has deployed its first driverless delivery truck on Ontario roads. And retail analyst Bruce Winder joins us to discuss that. This municipal election, Hamilton's seeing a number of first-time candidates, many of them activists. Is this transition an easy one for them to make? Justin Chandler, a journalist with TVO, speaks with us about that. And Tim Hortons is the latest to drop sponsorship for Hockey Canada's men's leagues, but left funding for their women's, children, and Paralympic teams at the same time. It's kind of strange, isn't it? Uh, Joanne McNeish, Associate Professor of Marketing at Toronto's Metropolitan University, will help us understand that. It's all coming up in the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. We've talked about supply chain problems, uh, getting goods to market. Uh, we know the prices are skyrocketing just about everywhere these days. And uh, one of the reasons for that, of course, is, uh, well, getting things from point A to point B, right? And the concern here is that uh, we don't have enough truckers. And that's something, by the way, that uh, that predates uh, what's going on with uh, the pandemic and some of the concerns that we've had there. But uh, it's an issue like so many others that has been exacerbated by the pandemic, and it continues today. And it's it's contributing, certainly, to uh, to what's going on. So what's the solution to this? Well, interestingly enough, uh, one company is using some technology that we've talked about before, and, and we've always had this conversation on kind of a conceptual basis about what's going on, but now it's uh, starting to become a reality, and that is uh, self-driving vehicles. And Loblaw, yes, them, those guys, uh, seem to be the first ones up to the plate here. Joining us to talk about this is Bruce Winder. Bruce, of course, is a retail analyst and author. Uh, always a pleasure to get you on the show, Bruce. Thanks so much for the time today. Uh, yeah, hey, what do you think of this idea? That, well, this is yeah, this is an interesting concept here because it's it's something that we've talked about, I guess, and, and it's something that we figured, excuse the bad pun here, something is going to happen down the road. But I guess uh, necessity is the mother of invention. I mean, we need to get goods to and we don't have enough drivers. This seems to be the logical solution to this. What are your thoughts on it? Yeah, I, I am. Uh, I agree with you 100. percent I mean, it, and this has been sort of in the works uh, for the industry for a, quite a while. Um, in you know, self-driving vehicles, autonomous vehicles, um, and this does solve a lot of problems for companies, um, particularly as you mentioned with the trucker shortage and and just with finding enough people overall to do anything. So you know, robotics is is has and will continue to take a larger uh, you know portion of of sort of basic jobs. And this is one of the sectors where you're going to see, you know, whether it's an Uber driver, whether it's a truck driver, you're going to see these type of vehicles take over a lot of jobs in the next 10 years. Or fill jobs that haven't been filled yet. I mean, because you're right. I mean, that was part of the discussion in, in, the, in the last couple of years, I guess, wasn't it? Uh, you know, where they said, look, you know, they're going to take jobs away from people. Well, uh, in this particular situation, they're filling vacancies that, that we just don't seem to have people for at this stage. So this seems like a win-win without any negative consequences, at least on the surface anyway. Yeah, I think you make a great point. You're right. I mean, the story's turned pretty quickly here over the last few years, and now there's such a shortage that... You're right, the machines will help us in terms of just filling jobs. Um, one of the things just to, to, to be mindful of is this technology is not perfected yet, though. And you'll notice that what Loblaws is doing is they're using sort of very basic select routes from warehouses to stores. You, you, you notice that they're not delivering to home yet because um, these, these vehicles, uh, the technology has a bit of a difficult time navigating when there's more complex objects like people or pets and things like that. Um, and, and that's sort of the big issue right now in the world is that's why they're not delivering stuff to our homes because the technology is like 85, 90% right. But that last 10% can be quite dangerous if you're in a subdivision that has maybe kids or cyclists and things like that. 
Well, and that's why, frankly, I was surprised when I saw this story on, on the TV news a couple of nights ago uh, about this development and, and, and where this is going on. Uh, because we still, every now and then, hear these stories about some of the tests that are going on. And, you know, a, 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 you know, a, a self-driving car or something drives off a, a bridge into the, a lake or something like that. So, whoops, okay, we've got some work to do on this. I, I guess at this stage, Bruce, that they must be comfortable with the technology and, and where they are now anyway to, to have gone to this step. Yeah, frankly, I was surprised as well when I read the article, because I thought that sort of we had a little while to go, like another 10 years or so. Um, but I guess what's happening, because they're using these basic routes that don't involve a lot of people or objects, they're able to pull it off. Um, but yeah, I was a bit shocked, too. I thought we were a few years away from even this happening. But uh, hey, I guess maybe this company's found a way to overcome some of those issues. I'm not sure. Well, the other element to this too, and I, I was uh, reading the piece in the Globe and Mail about this uh, and about Loblaw and their their commitment to this right now. They seem pretty excited about it, uh, but you have to have obviously some permission and some some buy in here, I guess, from the provincial government, who's in charge of transportation, of course. Uh, and they don't seem to want to talk about this a whole lot. I mean, they understand it's going on right now, uh, but they say they're not at liberty to confirm any details right now. This doesn't seem like they're quite wanting to jump on board and 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 share the joy of the technology here right now. I, I'm getting the sense that some folks in the ministry are, are a little apprehensive about this just yet. Yeah, I noticed that too, and I thought that was quite interesting. There must be something behind the story here in terms of maybe maybe they've uh, they have a relationship with certain labor groups who see this as a threat. But you're right; I was surprised that they didn't jump out and take credit for this, um, especially in a province that you know is really all about sort of business first. Um, so yeah, there must be some type of agenda behind the scenes here as to why they're not discussing it, and maybe that'll lead to another story down the road. Well, and we I don't want to mislead the, our, our listeners. I mean, the ministry has uh, given them permission to do this. I mean, they've got approval to carry on with this process. Uh, but as you say, I, it, it's it's not, you know, it's not perfect. And the, the bugs, I hope, are all ironed up. But we won't know, I guess, until this uh, these, these guys hit the road for a period of time as to what's it's going to work. Now, this, this technology, I guess, Bruce, we know about this, right? I mean, yeah, anybody that, you know, my car, for instance, it beeps if I get too close to another car or another car is coming at me, or if I'm backing up, you know, it, it tells me when to stop and things like that. And I, I would imagine that these these sensors are going to be all around. That's probably what they're using here to try to, to, to guide these vehicles. Oh, yeah, for sure. The technology has been around for a while. You're right. We see it on everyday vehicles now. And I actually wrote about this technology in my book a couple of years ago when I put it out. But, um, you know, so, so it's, it's really good, but it's not perfect. Now, one can argue, Elon Musk argues, well, drivers aren't perfect, so we're on an even playing field. Well, that, I understand that point, but it's difficult to sort of, you know, uh, endorse in a technology that, you know, has, has a risk of something bad happening. Now, again, maybe this company has found a way to perfect this, and maybe there's a way that, you know, they, they have a secret sauce that others haven't, where the, the, you know, the percentage of an error happening is almost nothing. And if they have, I applaud them. That's great. Um, but last time I checked, there was a few sort of uh, gaps here in terms of having it to the point where they'd feel comfortable at going down like a, you know, a suburban street where there's a school and children and things like that. Well, and, and again, yeah, that's the apprehension that I think a lot of people are sharing about this now, about you know, where we are with the technology uh, and what's going to be happening here. The, 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 I guess the, the way they used to do this, and I think Loblaw started doing this, is uh, they don't have a driver, but there is somebody sitting in the cab, I guess, just in case. Uh, to override the vehicle in case something goes kind of screwy like that. But uh, this, according to the story in the Globe uh, that I know you read as well, uh, they seem to have moved past that right now and said, no, we don't need that individual in there anymore. So uh, I guess they're comfortable with it. But I think 
that seemed to me to be, as you mentioned, the kind of the interim step that, you know, I don't care if they're sitting in there reading a book or something, but they're there. And if something goes wrong, they can hit the brake or do whatever they need to do. Uh, but they seem to have bypassed that here. Yeah, and that was the big surprise, right? Now, they did mention that, you know, if there is something weird or something odd that the computer doesn't recognize, it's going to pull over, it's going to stop, and then someone can take it over remotely like a drone. But, uh, yeah, I was kind of surprised by that, that, you know, it was kind of, it's kind of driving around since August without a driver in there. Uh, uh, that was uh, probably more advanced than I thought it would be at this stage. So who's, uh, excuse me, the bad pun here, I'm full of them today. Who's driving the bus here? Uh, what's the company that's actually driving this technology? And, and do you see Loblaw is the first one, but do you see other, uh, other industries and other businesses jumping on board here? Yeah, I do. I mean, this, this is something that's not going away. I forget the name of the company. It's like something GoTech or something, or GoTech, and uh, something with a G. And uh, Loblaws actually has a stake in the company, so they've invested some money in the company. So certainly if they have a secret sauce that, you know, allows them to get closer to perfection, they're going to be a winner. But they're not alone. There's lots of other companies that are uh, using this technology or developing this technology. So it's a bit of a, a space race, if you will, to try to be the first one to get it, you know, to the almost perfect point. Um, and this is going to become widespread. It's going to be ubiquitous over the next, you know, 20 years where, like I said before, instead of getting an Uber driver, you're going to get one of these, you order a pizza, one of these will show up, you know, pretty much everything, buses, uh, there's a lot of vehicles where you can see this applying to. So it's really going to be the way of the future over the next several uh, decades. Uh, Gatik, you're right. Uh, I just looked it up where you were talking, the G-A-T-I-K. Uh, that yeah. seems to be the head company. And as you mentioned, Loblaws is, Loblaws has invested in that. So obviously they believe exactly. in the technology too. And and it's, I get the impression, Bruce, that this is very transferable, that, you know, you can start to use this, as you mentioned, with Uber, with a number of other initiatives. Uh, but like everything else that's going to come into the market over the next little while, uh, it all depends on as to whether or not we, the public, buy into this. So is, is there a comfort level here, do you think? Or are people going to be a little apprehensive about getting into an Uber vehicle, for instance, that's, that's self-driving? Or, if, you know, to see, uh, you know, going down the highway and he's like, oh, the, hey, there's nobody in that truck there. They're a little nervous about that, too. Yeah, people are going to be quite alarmed about it until there's a proven track record of years where no one gets killed and there's no accidents. And that's not the case right now. You always hear about issues, uh, maybe in the U.S. more than Canada, where, you know, there was a, a driver who maybe, you know, let auto drive take over, whatever it is. And the car crashed or it hit, killed someone, right, in the U.S. So you're, gonna, you're hearing about these stories. And even though it might be a very low percentage of activity, it still haunts people, right? So it's going to be a while, I think, before people are really comfortable with it. And proof will be in the pudding. You know, they're going to have to have X hours of driving without an incident and broadcast that. And it's going to take a bit of time for people to really adopt this. Uh you, you're the guy that reports on this stuff. You find out what's going on, the, you know, what's the next big thing, et cetera, and whether or not they're going to catch on. Are you comfortable with this? Well, I'm comfortable that it's going to be solved and it's going to catch on. I'm just not comfortable yet personally that the technology is at the point where you can drive it in any spot of the city where there's kids and pets and cyclists and nothing's going to happen. And again, that might be a falsehood because people might say, well, with drivers, things happen. But we have a higher expectation with machines that they're pretty much almost perfect. So I personally am not comfortable with this until I see the proof in the pudding. Uh, I, I share the concern. I mean, listen, I don't even like to use cruise control on my car. I mean, I want to be in control. I want to be, you know, the person that's making the decisions when to break and when to turn and things like that. So uh, I'm not so sure this is going to happen. And it's going to, ha- but it, I, I guess we have to em- embrace this because inevitably this is going to be the future, isn't it? It is. It's going to happen whether we like it or not. Because one day you're going to phone uh, an Uber or you're going to 
just drive down the street and, you know, you're going to start seeing vehicles without drivers, whether you like it or not, because the companies, once they get approval from governments and they can make a business case, it's going to happen quickly um, because this is one of the big wins that business is looking for in terms of labor cost and also labor availability. To your point, it's one of the biggest pain points right now for companies, as you know, is labor shortage. So this will be accelerated if this thing works out. Is there going to be pushback, though? You touched on that a couple of minutes ago from, from organized labor that, that are going to look at this. And, and like I say, it, it, this may be an easing into it because we need truckers and we just don't have enough truckers and we can't hire them fast enough, I guess, to get to that problem solved. So this, this looks like a pretty good fit right now as an initial stage. But do you see where yeah, there's I... going to be a, a, a point of intersection where, where unions are going to say, well, wait a second here? I do. I think it's going to be sort of like, you know, not unlike what's happened with robotics, right? Robotics in factory yeah. settings um, or in retail stores. There's going to be, where there's unions involved, there's going to be some heavy discussions. I don't think, though, that unions can prevent this from happening, but they're probably going to slow the process a little bit in unionized areas. Uh, and nothing against unions. I think they're an important part of society. But I do think that they're going to probably, in some in some big sectors where they're entrenched, probably slow some of this down. But there's so many companies that aren't unionized these days, too, that they're going to get a leapfrog, and then the company's going to go to unions and say, look, if you want us to be around, we're going to have to embrace this technology, whether you like it or not. Well, and you're right. I mean, we've gone down, you know, this argument before, haven't we? I mean, you know, there used to be assembly lines to make these vehicles, you know, and there'd be hundreds and hundreds of people on those assembly lines, you know, screwing in this bolt or putting this piece on, et cetera. And, and it, it's all, as you mentioned, done by computers and technology now. There are people there that oversee it. Uh, so there are still jobs, just not as many of them. So I guess there's a, right. a sense of inevitability to that, too, that this is this is going to happen, whether they like it or not. I agree 100%. I think it's coming. I just thought it would come in another 10 or 20 years versus now. What's this going to do to industry in general, though? Um, as you mentioned, you know, the argument for this is, well, you know, we need people with jobs and they have the good paying jobs, et cetera. But, uh, you know, I, I talked to somebody in industry about this a year or two ago when this whole idea was floated. And as you say, Elon Musk was, was uh, you know, jumping up and down about this. Uh, and he said, well, you know, this is great. He said, you, you don't have to pay benefits to a driverless truck, you know, and uh, they don't usually get sick time either. So he says it's going to save exactly. these companies money. And I know that might be a rather cynical approach to it. But I mean, let's face it, a lot of companies uh, are, are hurting because of the pandemic and supply shortages, too. So uh, they're going to be looking for, for ways, I guess, to, to try to circumvent some of those problems. And this probably is not necessarily the solution, but at least part of the solution anyway. Yeah, this is going to be a massive solution. It's going to be a game changer for labor costs for organizations, obviously dependent on, you know, what your labor makeup is. But if you're in anything in the transportation industry, this is going to revolutionize uh, your business model and significantly lower your labor cost. There's going to be upfront costs for the technology, but they'll pay for itself fairly quickly, to your point, when you avoid all those other costs you have with people. Uh, particularly unionized people who are working in environments. So it's going to be one of the next low-hanging fruit for businesses in terms of uh, making more money. So what do you see with the industry itself? Uh, now that they're doing this with trucks, and I kind of thought that vehicles, like, you know, personal vehicles would be first in this, but uh, the, uh, because of the problems we've got, of course, with the supply chain issues, et cetera, uh, they seem to have gone to this extent anyway. But does this does this open it up now for, for as you say, personal use vehicles, your car, your next car might be a driverless car, or are we still, as you figure, maybe six or seven years down the road? Yeah, I personally don't think we're there yet in terms of having fully autonomous uh, non-commercial vehicles like residential vehicles. Um, yeah. I think we're, we're down the road. I don't know how long we are down the road, though, based on this development. 
but certainly in a commercial sense, you know, people who are moving things between factories, maybe simple routes, you know, uh, on a highway or something where you're transporting goods. Maybe you have a drone driver who's sort of overlooking things. You know, you're probably going to see more of this. This is where I see it, you know, working first is commercial area. And then down the road, once commercial works really well, you'll start to see it trickle into residential. Well, uh, here's hoping uh, it works, especially for those of us that are getting frustrated by the prices and the fact that it takes awfully long time to get goods to market these days. Uh, and and kudo, I guess, to Loblaw for being first up on this and, and using this technology. And uh, we'll see the progress, and, and hopefully there is going to be progress in this. Bruce, thanks so much for this. Always a pleasure having you on the program. Thanks for your conversation today. Yeah, appreciate it. Take care. Have a great day. Bye-bye now. You too. Bruce Winder, retail analyst and author about, uh, well, driverless vehicles. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. October 24th is uh, Municipal Election Day right across the province. Uh, cities, towns, villages going to elect councils. And uh, the Hamilton situation is uh, rather unique. Uh, 16 people on city council. Uh, usually, you might have one or two changes during municipal elections. I mean, incumbents have a huge, huge advantage when it comes to these sorts of things. But there are a number of vacancies uh, this time around, including the mayor's job, And if, if you haven't been following. Uh, and if you haven't been following, chances are you're probably going to start following now. This is around the time, about two and a half, three weeks before the election, when people mostly just say, oh, yeah, yeah, there's an election. I should decide who I'm going to vote for. Well, there's a piece that uh, you should read. It's on the TVO website uh, that talks about this, uh, tvo.org. And it's uh, written by uh, our next guest, Justin Chandler, is a reporter with uh, TVO. What happens when an activist runs for office? And uh, Justin joins us on the program uh, to talk about that. Appreciate the time. And by the way, great article and very timely, Justin. Oh, well, thank you very much. And thank you for having me. Great to have you with us here today. And, and as I was just saying in my preamble here, this is around the time. I mean, a lot of people, if you're a political animal, you, you've probably been watching this since the you know the beginning of time. But most of us are busy with our lives. We've got a lot of other things going on. Uh, but we want to vote. We want to be part of the community. We want to be part of the decision-making and what's going to happen with council. So now this is the time when they're starting to go, yeah, I think I'll go to that website. I want to find out what this candidate's and that candidate said. Uh this is a unique situation. I, I know that, you know, it's, this is not the first time that we've had uh, people with, uh, well, activists, I guess is the phrase that, that, that a lot of people use for this, that are running for council seats. Uh, you talk to a number of them that are running for office here. What was your impression about, about their attitude toward this? I guess one thing that was really in common for everybody is this feeling that this is going to be a change election. And I think that's because, as you mentioned, there's six council spots uh, where there's not an incumbent running. So we're going to have six new councillors and a new mayor. Um, and there seems to be just this real feeling that things are going to be different and there's an opportunity for, for new people to get in. Which doesn't often happen. Uh, and I know so many people that always thought, you know, it'd be, yeah, I, I wouldn't mind doing that, but I haven't got a chance. I mean, that so-and-so incumbent's been there for so many years and that we know all about the power of incumbency. So this, uh, this, I'm not going to say this has given them an easy ride into a situation like this, but there's an opening here, which I guess gives a lot of people hope at that stage. Yeah, I think that's the case. And I mean, I'm, I've also been looking at like, candidate acclamations, which are on the rise throughout uh, Ontario and in a lot of places where nobody's running. So Hamilton's is actually a really interesting race where there's uh, a lot of people throwing their hat in the ring. I think 82 ward council candidates. Yeah, I, I don't know. 
I don't remember the last time we've had this many people running for office in, in situations like this. But again, it, it, it's because, as you say, if there's no incumbent there, then, hey, hey, I got a shot. I got as much of a shot as, as whoever else is running in that particular ward, too. Uh, the problem here, and you touch on this in the article, I think, and I think it's an important part. Uh, these names that, of some of the folks that you talk to here are known within the community to a certain extent because they've been active and they've been vocal on whatever their main issue was. But are they known outside of the people that, that advocate for those things? In other words, are they, are they known to the greater population or do they have to go through that same process once again of introducing who they are and what they're all about? Well, I'm sure that there's a sum of facts, as you mentioned at the beginning, not everyone's as engaged in sort of local politics and what's going on. Um, but I know from some of the, the candidates that I spoke to, for example, uh, Linda Lukasik, she's been involved in with Environment Hamilton and with environmental advocacy in the city for a long time. She says she gets recognized at doors. And uh, Kojo Dampty said the same thing uh, running in Ward 14 that, uh, yeah, people are recognizing him and uh, knowing him from his work. So I think there is probably a, a higher level of name recognition for some of these candidates then for uh, just kind of your average person who might decide to run just because they've been in the public for so long. Now, the other side of that uh, that you touch on in the piece is, is do they run the risk of being perceived as as, as a one-issue candidate? Uh, if it's environmental stuff, okay, and yeah, you're great at that. But, you know, we've got other issues here too. You know, I mean, can I be confident that you're going to handle economic issues and, and, and you know, getting roads built and things like that? And, and each one of these people that you talk to, as we say, all have an expertise in a certain area. Uh, but is that enough to get them over the top in a situation like this? Or are they just going to be dismissed as well? Yeah, they're, they're good at that, but I don't know if they can handle everything else. Yeah, well, I put that to uh, the candidates and I, I think really they're, they're hoping that uh, people will, number one, accept that uh, you know, they can have opinions on a wide range of issues. Um, but also, like for example, Anthony Frazina, who's known for his uh, advocacy around accessibility, he says that really that's an issue that um, affects a lot of different aspects. So accessibility doesn't just mean like, let's make sure that people have uh, wheelchair ramps, for example, right? Like it, it also means let's make sure that people can work, uh, which affects the economy. There's an environmental angle. So um, when I put that to him, he said, really, he thinks um, accessibility is something that affects all aspects of politics. So it's not that he's uh, a single issue candidate. It's that he knows a lot about sort of one topic that branches into to different facets of life. We've talked about this in the past, and I know you've touched on this in the article too, and that's what we just mentioned at the beginning of the conversation about name recognition and how important that is, especially in municipal elections, because there's not supposed to be anyway, any party affiliation, so you're, you're out there by yourself. And you've probably, if you're knocking on doors, you've probably got about 30 to 60 seconds uh, to grab somebody's imagination. That's a tough haul if you're not used to doing it. And these, as you say, are all people that have been involved in the community. But to my knowledge, I think this is the first time any, well, Cameron Crush has run uh, for municipal council before, but I don't think any of the others have. I think Linda Lacassic might have run before. I uh, will have to, I <laughs> would have to double check with her. I have about to double that. check yes, on it's, that. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it's uh, it's new for um, for a lot of them, and um, yeah, it's it's definitely I think been an interesting case. Like Kojo Dampty was telling me that um, he's been meeting people, and some people recognize him and remember him from his different work uh, in the community. But he's also meeting people who don't even know that there's an election going on. And so he said sometimes he's knocking on a door and he's kind of informing people, oh yeah, like you you are going to be able to vote and here's the information on how you can do that. So some of those interactions are also becoming kind of a civics lesson. 
Well, uh, for somebody who's done this, I did rather for a number of years, of course, uh, when I was on city council, I guess one of the more frustrating things, and it's a reality, I guess they're all going to have to face, isn't it, Justin, that, you know, for every 10 doors that you knock on, uh, six of those 10 aren't going to vote. Uh, that's what the numbers indicate. You know, if we get 40% turnout for a municipal election, that's considered a good year, sadly. But that's the reality that they have to face. So you, you, you don't really know. And you don't know which six it's going to be, really. So it's 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 one of these things where you've got to put the work in and you got to, you know, get out there and do as much as you can. But you just you sit back and say, I hope it was enough. I hope they know me. I hope they like what I'm doing. Um, but it's a different different animal than, than what they're used to uh, when they're advocating because you've got to try to be all things to all people to a certain extent. Do they feel comfortable doing that? Yeah, I think that's something that uh, a lot of them are, are working with. One of the, the ideas that I was kind of asking everybody about was how do you go from saying, okay, I'm going to be an advocate, I'm going to talk about all these issues and I'm going to be outside the system to saying, you know what, I think I can make better change from inside the system. And that's something that all of them uh, made that decision and felt that that was the case. So for example, Linda was saying that was one of the, the toughest things um, for her decision, Linda Lukasik, was that she had to think, can I be the most effective change maker? Can I help uh, Hamilton do what I want it to do um, by being on council? And ultimately she decided yes, but that involves uh, sort of, as you said, thinking, um, am I just going to be sort of saying what I think should be happening? Um, listening to the community and sort of pushing on these issues, or am I now going to be responsible uh, for doing all these things as, as well? So it is, uh, I think, a pretty significant shift. Like, although people are still used to organizing and uh, talking about problems, these are all very engaged people. Um, they're definitely taking a, a new step uh, in, toward a different type of role. And, and I'm just wondering, I mean, that that's, you know, they're tagged. You know, they've got this expertise in one particular area. With Linda, of course, it's, it's the environment. Uh, and Anthony, it's it's uh, rights, of course, of, of disability and, and et cetera, et cetera, go down the list. Uh, but they've got to be well versed in the big picture issues, too. I mean, you know, time and time again, you saw what matters to people right now. And of course, it's it's the economy. It's it's inflation. And and, and I'm, I'm sure that's the sort of stuff. And it must be frustrating for them because they may want to talk about where their expertise has been. But at the same time, the person that that answers the door may want to talk about, you know, the cost of living. And hey, what are you going to do about this? Or what are you going to do about putting a stop sign in here or slowing traffic down? Uh, you can really get caught up in the minutia here. But that's kind of what municipal politics is all about, isn't it? Yeah, I think there's going to be a, a lot of interesting conversations uh, at the door and, you know, people asking, asking all sorts of questions. And, you know, like you said, there's, there's a lot of important topics right now and uh, people, people care about a lot of different things. You also asked a, a very pointed question that I, I assume these people have given some thought to as well. Uh, they've all been vocal and, and in certain degrees, they've all had some level of success. In, in the things that they have been advocating for. But as you mentioned, they've done that from outside the system. Um, you know, and then that's easy to do in a situation like that. You just have to be vocal and be consistent about that and, 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 and you know, not give up as these folks have done, which is why they're, they're still in the community and still known in the community. But as you mentioned out in the article, if, if they're successful and they get onto city council, you've got this whole long list of things that I promise to do this, I'm going to do this, I'm going to make this happen. Uh, you're only one vote on council. And, uh, and as you mentioned in the piece, uh, the wheels of government move very slowly. And the, the, I think whoever is successful here, they're going to find it very frustrating uh, to be in the system and try to make things move, especially if they have that, that agenda that they want to move forward. Yeah, that was a point that uh, politics prof I spoke to for this Thomas Klassen was making. And, and I don't think he wasn't trying to say that, for example, uh, 
candidates uh, who were involved in advocacy are going to be more apt to make promises that are tough to keep or something like that. But just that people who are are promising big changes, um, that's maybe a little higher profile, right? Like someone's going to notice, oh, like you wanted to make these big changes. Um, are those are those happening? And that's something that candidates then, uh, if they get in, have to be accountable to their constituents. And it is certainly something that uh, I think they're all thinking about. Like Cameron Crutch, for example, I spoke to him about this. He's running in Ward 2. Um, and he said that, you know, being a counselor sort of in- involves having to maybe conform to a role or there's an idea that you have to sort of act in a certain way. Um, and he talked about, you know, ideas around heteronormativity, around whiteness, around uh, being maybe a little bit more corporate. And he says that can really kind of exclude some people from getting in. And it's something that he's trying to resist. Um, and his feeling, and I think uh, Kojo Dampty and some of the others, they, uh, they said the same, is that they feel that in the same way that they're used to engaging with community and um, being organizers and bringing people in, that's something that they also want to bring to council. And their hope is that if they come up with an issue like uh, the movie Mr. Smith Goes to Washington or something like that, where there's a barrier or they can't get something done because of some systemic way that people do things on council or some sort of brokerage politics issue, that they can go back to their constituents and say, this is what's happening and really try and be transparent with people. And that's what they all were saying to me is that they felt that transparency would be the key, that even if you can't get something done, uh, that people appreciate knowing that you're trying, knowing why it's not working, and then what your backup plan is. Because that's going to happen. I mean, the, 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 you're right. I mean, that's a great example, too. Mr. Smith goes to Washington with Jimmy Stewart. Uh, you know, as, as kind of a, you know, a wide-eyed, uh, naive, some people would think, a senator, and, and he ran into the, the system, quote-unquote. Uh, he won at the end, happy ending. But, I mean, it's not always a happy ending. The other element to this, too, and I, and I think uh, Professor Klassen touched on this in, in your conversation with him for the piece that you wrote, uh, is that uh, a lot of these people were successful in their own given area of expertise because they were adamant about this and said, you know, we're, we, we can't take no for an answer, for instance. Uh, politics is compromise. It means, in other words, you may have to set that aside or you may have to water down the wine just a little bit to get some support for this. Let's face it, as you mentioned, there's 16 people on council. Uh, you got to get nine votes to get anything passed. And, uh, and that takes a little bit of work. And in some cases, you may have to not necessarily, you know, give up your principles, but you're going to have to, you know, be a little easier about some of these things and maybe less adamant about it to try to get something passed to get somebody else on side with you. That's, that's going to maybe difficult because it may be something they're not used to doing. Yeah. And I think uh, when I, when I spoke about that with some of them, for example, Cameron Crutch said um, that he would, he would be saying to other counselors, like, how can we do this? If uh, something can't be done, uh, maybe what can we advocate about? Is this an issue that we have to talk to the province about? But uh, I think you're right. That's going to come up, right? Any, any council body, you've got to work with everyone who's on it. And, you know, maybe some of these candidates that I spoke to get in, maybe they don't, but there's there's going to be six uh, new councillors for sure. And who knows what uh, all their ideas will be and what kind of energy they'll bring to council. So there's always going to be that need for people to, uh, to work together. And I, I think that all candidates just hope that they can you know, facilitate that and that they can uh, do a good job with that aspect of it. Is, is this a, this is unusual though to have this many openings on a council, isn't it? I mean, I know, you know we're, as we mentioned, we're all in this province going through elections on October twenty fourth, cities, towns, villages, etc. Uh, Toronto Council, I, I guess there's a few incumbents that aren't running again too, but it's unusual to have this kind of a, a, a turnover. I think last municipal election of Hamilton, if I remember correctly, I think there were three new faces 
and and that's that was considered to be unusual at the time. Uh, this is as as you mentioned in the piece. This is the potential here uh, to really make a huge difference on council and the direction the council might take going forward. Yeah, I think it's super exciting, and I, I mean the Association of Municipalities of Ontario just put out some data that. Uh, I think it was 19% of elected offices in the province um, only had one person running. So those candidates just just won instantly. Um, so I, I think being in a place where there's so many people running and so many ideas um, out for discussion is really exciting. And I think we're lucky in Hamilton uh, to be in a place where we can have this. It certainly seems like there's a lot of energy going on right now. And I mean, yeah, local democracy is pretty exciting. Do they notice that? You get a buzz at the door sometimes, or not. Uh, I know that some people have characterized this election in Hamilton as, as kind of a ho-hum thing, that because there isn't a key issue like there was in the past. You know, the LRT has been settled, we hope, anyway. Uh, you know, the stadium issue from the election before that, and, and, and the expressway issue, I think, dominated you know municipal elections for years. Well, it's built and it's working now. But there doesn't seem to be one election or one issue right now that people are seeming to gravitate to. Did, did, did this people you talk to here, the, the candidates that you've talked to in this particular case, Justin, uh, do they feel as if uh, they, they don't have anything to hook on to here? I mean, you've got to have like, you know, like you're a journalist. You need to you need a lead. Right. And there doesn't seem to be one except for maybe the things that they've been advocating for. Yeah, it's that's actually not something that they they'd said that they were worried about. I mean, as far as what they were telling me, um, people have been really interested to talk about a variety of things with them. Um, be it, you know, the environment, be it accessibility, be it the economy, uh, transparency, leadership on council, like, uh, according to uh, to these candidates, there's no shortage of things that uh, people at the door want to talk about. And, you know, maybe for lack of one big issue, there's several small, uh, also important issues, small is not the right word, but just, you know, a, a diverse uh, array of things that people in the city care about. Uh, it's a great piece. Uh, people are directed to the webpage once again. Uh, you can go to tvo.org uh, slash article uh, slash what happens when an activist runs for office. Uh, very insightful piece and uh, very germane, of course, to what's going on in this particular community. Justin, thanks so much for, for writing that. And thanks for spending some time with us today. Really appreciate it. No, oh, I appreciate the opportunity. You take care. Take care. We'll talk again soon, I hope. Justin Chandler, journalist with the TVO. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We want to talk about what's going on with Hockey Canada. Uh, that's our national sport, as we know, and everybody wants to get their kids involved in this. And uh, we were shocked, I guess. Just about everyone was shocked uh, with the revelations about the money that was being spent to uh, basically, as some MPs characterized it yesterday, hush money uh, to try to keep the, uh, the victims of sexual assault charges uh silent and you know the players of course who were allegedly involved in this uh, seemed to skate away with uh, with no ramifications at all yesterday uh, a number of people on the hockey canada board appeared before a parliamentary committee and uh it was it was shocking uh, to see their attitude and the answers uh we gotta wonder what's going to happen going forward here and to uh, bring us uh, some clarity on this, we're so pleased to welcome back to the program Joanne McNeish, who is an associate professor of marketing with Toronto Metropolitan University. Uh, professor, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for the time today. Thanks, Bill, for having me on. And, and great to follow up with you on this story because we talked in the summer yeah. uh, about this behavior. And you really encapsulated what happened at, at the hearings in front of the government. Well, you know what's interesting? <laughs> As I was watching, I mean, I was shocked by, by the attitude. I mean, you know, the story itself, you're right, Joanne, is, is troubling enough. 
but their attitude yesterday toward this committee. I mean, I, I felt, you know, I said, whoever's doing public relations for them, get your money back because you've done a lousy job on this. Uh, they, they really just kind of threw gasoline on the fire yesterday, I thought. Absolutely. And, and in fact, I went to I thought, well, maybe I'm I'm not being sympathetic enough to Hockey Canada. And I went to their website to look at the kinds of statements they've issued. And it looks like they don't have a PR team. They have lawyers running the uh, the uh, crisis management plan. And I don't even think they have that very legalistic. Here's the steps we've taken. But basically, it's as if they're negotiating with the Canadian population of hockey lovers um, what we, what people should think of them. And by the way, we're really smart hockey people, so you should just listen to us. So really egregious uh, attitude, an attitude that basically says we really don't care about your opinions. We'll go on. And and that's why the actions of these big corporations, Tim Hortons, Scotiabank, tell us is really important because if they won't listen to those of us who really love and care about the game, have our kids playing the game, then maybe they'll listen to these corporations as they start to pull the money because the sponsorship is significant. And by the way, a number of these companies also advertise uh, with Hockey Canada. So sponsorship is the first part of this, but there may be other discussions in the background. All of these companies have said, said in the summer we're watching and waiting and wanting to hear something uh, more positive more forward thinking and and we see now that hockey canada and i think it's the management team i don't think it's all the coaches or all the players these incidents happen in 2018 and 2003 so i would say i think down the organization people are wanting change but it's the management team the senior management team that is refusing to understand what they should be doing in this situation and evoking the lawyers and speaking in legalese is not the right approach do they get it or are they just put is this a facade i mean i can't understand that people that are allegedly, you know, knowledgeable about things like this uh, would take this sort of an attitude. This kind of, a, it's really kind of a cavalier attitude. I mean, you know, uh, mm. you know, the acting chair Skinner was was talking with us yesterday, and he she essentially said, "Look, at sexual assault happens all over the place. So, you know, so why are you sending us us out? Uh, oh. They just don't seem to understand that they have a responsibility here." So, so Bill, I think it's quite fascinating. Such again, again, that same mistake of literally not listening and understanding so i actually teach a marketing case course where we discuss mm -hmm. companies with problems and the students say well now that we know what the problem is and how to solve it that must mean all the other companies know i think i think hockey canada is not behind the scenes doing anything they've had many many months to do something because remember when we discussed the issue in the summer it had actually been going on or at least some of the public stuff had come forward almost six eight months ago so, no, I don't think they get it. I think it reflects an attitude of senior management that they're above the court of public opinion or maybe above the rink of public opinion and that for them, they can just continue without taking any tangible public action. And what people are looking for is a change in attitude and some public action because the statement they publish, their public statements on their website are legal documents. They're basically step by step. Here's the things we've done. And we tried to do this and we tried to do that, but we were thwarted here. We couldn't do this. It's excuses. And and dare I say bullying, it, it, it's an attitude. It plays into the worst mm -hmm. stereotypes of uh, a hockey player. It, it's just so sad. And it damages hockey at a time when it has a lot of competition among young children from soccer. 
And so what I'm thinking is, could it be that uh, 40 years from now, uh, hockey will be a sport a few people play, but soccer will be our dominant sport as it is in other countries? That That's the damage this kind of situation can do ultimately. So they need to get rid. Now, I, I didn't argue for this uh a few months ago, you when you and I talked about it, I don't. I said no. We got to give people a chance to fix things, and sure. you said, "Yeah, I think I agree with that." But now I say, get rid of that management team. They need to go. They they can't make the changes necessary. I remember a conversation you and I had months ago, and it wasn't even about this issue. I think it was just on a, a very generic frame. But anyway, you you've told me that, and this I guess goes right into your the stuff that you're teaching in the classes at uh, at Metropolitan University. When a corporation has a problem or they're faced with something like this, the first thing they have to do is own it, mm. uh, and, and these guys don't own it. They they're not admitting that this is their problem. Right, right. Oh, th- th- that's exactly right. Because in fact, whether you're a corporation with millions, uh, billions of dollars, or the smallest person, the first thing you have to say is, let me take on my responsibility. And they've owned none of the responsibility. They've systematically blamed everyone, including the victim and the police and the hockey players in their own written statements. I'm not misquoting them. That's in their written statements. And you're right. The first couple of things in a crisis management plan, what you don't even have to own the whole situation, own a piece of it. What could you have done differently? then you've already pre-planned for all the events and you have a skilled spokesperson and we've yet to see someone speaking authentically. I've not felt one Hockey Canada representative spoke to the government, to the public, to the media in any way other than with arrogance. And that is not the right approach in a crisis like this. I mean, I don't want to suggest, and I don't think anybody wanted to see or expected anyone to grovel uh, when they came before mm-hmm. this community. But, but, but a little bit of contrition, you know, to say, yeah, you know what, this got out of hand, and 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 no, and yes. just to to take you know Chair Skinner's remarks. Yes, it happens all over society, but it's happening in our organization, and, and we can't tolerate that. And we're going to take steps. Something like that would at least say, okay, there's an intention there. But they didn't even want to go that road. Oh, Bill, they should hire you. They're, they're, they're the words. You know what? And, and, you know, lawyers can approve those kind of words too. Lawyers will uh, listen and, you know, manage the risk. And and by the way, we've seen this happen uh, remarkably well. So we have Tiger Woods uh, who got himself into a lot of trouble, but eventually his brand recovered because he appeared to take action to resolve some of the situations. And we have our classic, we always talk about Nike activist brand, they get themselves into situations. But the other thing that's happening with the Nike versus Hockey Canada is I worry about their their mission or their corporate core, their corporate culture. In Nike, they understand these are the principles we stand for. Therefore, we're willing to take criticism, even some financial hits short term, in order to stand for the principles uh, behind our athletes. And that's that's what I feel is missing. There's no soul here. And, and you're right. It's not owning all aspects of everything, but taking the part that you can fix and can change. And certainly we know across sports organization, uh, Rowing Canada is facing some issues in terms of Mm -hmm. the culture around the coaching and the senior management. So we know that sports organizations have these problems. But the first step is to say, what piece of this can we begin to change? And you start publicly talking about that. Because if I had a young child, is hockey going to be my choice over another sport and that we know that hockey enrollments are going down so they're already facing a problem from the bottom and they have this absolutely uh, negative situation 
which is goes on and on and on. This we've talked about this um, every couple of months, and it's not getting any better. I I would have thought by now we'd be talking about the great recovery they're doing. No, they've they've just made the situation worse. When you have government united in their disdain for the organization, all parties, you actually know. I would say, as an organization, you would begin to understand you're in trouble. Well, and that was one of the, the things that we touched on as well. As you mentioned, there's a number of, well, all the parties are represented in that committee. Uh, and they all agreed. They were all in unison. And you don't get MPs to agree on anything in Ottawa these days. I mean, they, you know, you'd get a split vote if you said, hey, oh, this is Thursday. I'm not so sure it is. If you say it is, maybe, <laughs> yes, because that's how politicians act. But they were they were unanimous in their, I think they're disgusted about what was going on. Yeah. And the arrogance of the board. I mean, you know, when, when one of the MPs uh, suggested that the board had to resign, uh, they said if they did that, what would happen to hockey? I mean, would they, the rinks, yeah. you know, the lights come on? I mean, as if the whole thing is just dependent upon them. I mean, that, that sort of an attitude probably is indicative of exactly why this problem got as deep as it did. Yes, because when, and, and, and in terms of corporate culture, the tone is set from the top and then it filters down. Promotions depend on you responding to the way your senior management team wants you to. And they will, unfortunately, continue to promote the people that agree with them, that have the same attitudes. So I think now, and and again, the, the, the mechanisms to remove them are a little bit difficult. It's They would have to choose to resign, but imagine a mindset that they don't even understand that they are the problem, therefore getting them to resign. But hopefully behind the scenes, there's also the, the the sort of political and financial machinations. And again, that's that's why we, we can applaud um, these different brands. And it's interesting, you know, you, social media, does that represent regular people? But I went on Twitter and unanimously people were, were applauding. They had the applause the emojis and the cheering mm-hmm. emojis. There wasn't any sort of corporate cynicism around why Tim Hortons or Scotiabank pulled out or Tesla, uh, uh, um, TELUS. It was applause, universal applause for the action of these organizations and a hope from, you know, just regular Canadians that now Hockey Canada will listen. And, and, and again, the next step is these are organizations watching them. They're getting... Um, positive feedback from their customers. And so now they'll look at other properties and uh, media properties that they own um, or pay for in Hockey Canada. And those boards might look pretty empty if some of these companies start pulling off their advertising. Because again, sponsorship is one issue, uh, but then there's other contracts and and uh, um, and uh, uh, the media opportunities that these uh, companies uh, share between these partners share. I mean, it's really interesting. We also have in Rogers and and Bell, they they're huge media conglomerates. Uh, these uh, um, Hockey Canada is offered on these media stations. What if there was a boycott of a couple of games? Now, again, we have to be careful because there's also contractual agreements. But these are often this is where destruction of brands begins. It never begins in a big way. It begins with activities uh, that that, that co- companies make mistakes. But it's the lack of response, the lack of ownership of the mistakes that eventually uh, destroys or disables a, a, a company. And that's what you we see happening now. One of the classic examples of that, you mentioned Tiger Woods, of course, and it took years for him to kind of get back yeah. in people's good books. But with the Rogers situation this past summer, a classic example of that, that fiasco, of course, and that that 
terrible Friday when everything got shut down here for other, almost an entire day. Uh, and they're doing the mea culpa. You've probably seen the commercials oh, on TV yes. right now. We're sorry. We're spending money. Please love us again. It, t it takes yes. a long time and a lot of attitude. And Hockey Canada, with their attitude, I guess, really with what they showed, Joanne, uh, they're delaying that process because they don't seem to want to admit that they have to go down that road. Right, because you have to start with it. And and again, we weren't impressed with Rogers at the time, but I absolutely agree with him watching the kind of work they're doing, what they're putting in their social media, what they're putting on traditional media. And I, what, what we all like as people, and we uh, apply that thinking to companies, is that tell me that you understand the problem, tell me you're going to do something about it, and then keep telling me in a, as you said, a, at an appropriately apologetic way. It, the, you, the, again, it's not lying feet on the ground, we're going to give you millions of dollars for this problem, although I'm sure in some ways they're negotiating with some companies. But absolutely, that very positive tone of, we're really trying hard to fix this, and this is what we've done, because you need both the words and attitude, but you need the actions. And then people will forgive you, because in fact, people prefer not to hold on to grudges. But except in situations like Hockey Canada, where... They're increasing our dislike of them. And if they think the game is be, could be destroyed be, when they're removed, it, it's a different situation. It, the game will be destroyed because of them. And again, it's not that they're without competition now. It might be 30 years ago they didn't have, there weren't competitive alternatives. Basketball being another alternative yeah. uh, in terms of attracting young people. And that's a core financial base for them. And they are concerned about that because their share of that kids' children's sports market is declining. So not a good situation. Not at all. Joanne, always great to get your perspective on this. Thanks so much for this today. Stay well and uh, we'll uh, watch the stories that unfolds. hopefully as it unfolds. Oh, hopefully it's involved. Hope we're not going to be talking about the same negative situation again. Oh, my goodness. Thank you so much, Bill. I really appreciate it. Take care, Joanne. Appreciate the time. Joanne McNeish, uh, Professor of Marketing with the Toronto Metropolitan University. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.